verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. One of the most famous orphans is a fictional one by the name of Harry Potter. I can tell by your laughs that you know who I'm speaking of. Indeed, the sales of that book are so wide that even if you are pretending like you haven't read it, you probably have read it, or have heard of it, or watched the movie in some capacity. Harry Potter, his parents are killed, and he is an orphan, and there's this book or movie, you could watch either one, it tells the story of, of how Harry, uh, as an orphan child, hears the story of one of his parents' best friends by the name of Sirius Black. And he finds out the story that, that Sirius Black, who was supposed to be the one who had betrayed his parents, was not the one who betrayed his parents and was loyal to them all along and indeed was his godfather so that he could have, instead of his uh, kind of pseudo-family, the Dursleys, he could go live with Sirius Black. And, and in the book and in the movie, almost as soon as he finds this out, almost as soon as he, he gets this chance, like, finally, I get this new life, uh, under a godfather who really loves me and with a family that really wants me, other than this other family that, I've, that has hated me all along, as soon as he finds that out, the option of going to live with his godfather is actually taken back from him. And he doesn't get to go stay with him, and instead he has to go back to live with the Dursleys, a family that despises him. Christian, I wonder if your adoption feels like that at times. We, we sing a song around here called, Thou Lovely Source of True Delight. And speaks of the, the delight that we can experience and know in the one true living God. Knowing Him as His children. But do you remember one of the lines that says, All too soon the pleasing scene is what? Is clouded over with pain. I wonder if that's your experience in your adoption, Christian. And if so, here's what we have. We have the heat and the light of Romans chapter 8 because what Romans chapter 8 seems to be doing is taking all of its warmth, all of its heat, all of its light, and it is 
shining it straight at those clouds of pain, trying to dispel them rightly in light of truth. So to those who have the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, Paul continues his passage and chapter of assurance by saying in verses 18 through 25 that you, we, have hope in future glory. And this hope of future glory, it's not a flimsy hope that's out of touch with reality, that's kind of, you know, pie in the sky, you're riding on the clouds and everything's great and wonderful all the time. This hope of future glory, Paul, he couches in reality. It's hope that's not without suffering. It's hope that's not without groaning. It's hope that's not without waiting. But it's hope in the suffering. It's hope in groaning. It's hope in waiting. And Christians, we can have this hope in the midst of all of our sufferings, all of our groanings, and all of our waiting. All three of those things are part of our lives. We suffer, we groan, we wait. And in the midst of that, we can also say we hope. We hope for future glory. And now in chapter 8, verse 17, Paul has just stated that, that all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? They're sons of God. They're children of God. They're adopted into His family. He says in verse 17, and if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. There, there are two certainties here listed. What are they? The, the certainties of the Christian life. There, there's the certainty of suffering and the certainty of glory. Both of them are with Him. You're going to suffer with Him and you're going to be glorified with Him. But those are the certainties of the children of God. But like our elder brother and Lord Jesus Christ suffered and was glorified, He says, you're adopted like Him. You're co-heirs with Him. You're going to suffer. You'll be glorified. Those go together. Jesus is the one who suffered. He was a man of suffering. He was well acquainted with grief. The man of sorrows. And after his suffering came his resurrection. Here's a man who faced death. And after his death, he became the heir of all things. The Lord of all things. He descended from heaven and he descended into death and the grave. And then he ascended. He went through suffering and then he went through to glory. And in his co-heirs... Those who trust in Him, who have the Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Him, dwelling in them, those co-heirs, that's the path before us. Amen. Descent, death, and then glory. The road to glory passes through the valley of the shadow of death. But what Paul doesn't want happening is say, like, here's the two certainties, suffering and, and then glory. He doesn't want those things to be equated. As if we have suffering over here and glory over here and we put them on the scale and they're kind of the same thing and we're going to have to face them both. He, he dispels that right here in verse 18. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. I want us to see the contrast between the two. There's plural sufferings here and one glory. There's present sufferings and future glory. The sufferings are, are something you experience, you know, and you feel right here and right now. And this glory is future. It's distant. It sometimes sees far, seems far off. And the conclusion from those things, considering the sufferings and the future glory, is he says, it's not even a comparison. Don't even compare them. It's not even worth it. This glory that he speaks about is the, the inheritance of the people of God, the inheritance of the saints that awaits them. It's the glory, he says, that glory that awaits you who trust in Christ that's not even worth comparing with your present sufferings. It's a bit like taking a bucket of water, 
taking it all the way out, hauling it to the ocean, and trying to compare the amount of water. Bucket versus ocean. Like, that's, that's not even worth doing. Not even worth comparing. He doesn't say, you know what's a big difference, but let's, let's try to measure it. He doesn't say, you know what, it's a pretty big difference, but we'd like to see the amount. So let's put it on the scale. He says it's not worth comparing. Don't compare it. <laughs> not worth it. Not worth your time. But you all know the, the weight of a bucket of water, right? I, mean, I grew up on a farm. I had to carry water sometimes to the livestock. Not very fun. Maybe you mop. You have to carry a mop. But you know the weight of water, right? And if I gave you a bucket of water to hold, wouldn't take long, I don't think, before you'd start to think, it's pretty heavy. Hurts, maybe. I think suffering seems like that. It doesn't take long. It seems heavy. And it hurts. And I think that's precisely the point of the struggle. Because here we are in Oklahoma and the ocean seems a long way off. Can't see it here. Can't grasp it. Can't put our hands on it. Like can't take a dive in it. Like it's, it's far off. I don't know its weight. But I can feel the pocket pulling on my arm. My shoulder's getting sore. Now my back hurts. My hand is starting to hurt from the grip around this handle. So how can we have the hope of verse 18 that says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed. How can we have the confidence of future glory in our present sufferings? I think it's a matter of looking. It was on the screen earlier. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says this, so we don't lose heart. How do we not lose heart? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It's a matter of looking, Paul says here. It's interesting that he says, look not to the seen things, right? Look, seen, but look to the unseen. Paul, what's going on here? Obviously, he's not talking about a physical looking with our eyes, but a looking, a trusting, a, a having a confidence in a looking with our hearts. And, and he says of that kind of looking, kind of the inward looking, the looking of trust of your heart, he says, don't look to the things that are seen because those things that you can see, they're, they're transient they're fading, they're passing away, they're wasting away like your outer self, they're decaying. But instead, you, you can look to other things. Don't look there, that's the first. Don't look that way, look this way. Look to, with the eyes of faith, look to the unseen things, the eternal things, kind of like the things that he talks about here in Romans 8, the weight of glory, the glory that's to be revealed to the sons of God, the, the glory that says it's not worth comparing, he Fix your eyes there. Look there. Look at your inheritance. What did he say in verse 17? You are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ Jesus. You need to look to those things. There's a Puritan prayer that I think seems to contrast this well. Contrast the seen and transient things with the unseen things. He, he, he says this, We may easily be deprived of our earthly treasure, 
Many have lost treasures. By storms at sea, by force and violence, by fraud and deceit, by hideous lying and hellish swearing. But you are a portion that the fire cannot burn, that the floods cannot drown, that the thief cannot steal, that the enemy cannot commandeer, that the soldier cannot plunder. Someone may take my gold from me, but no one can take you from me. Until weakness can make a breach upon strength, impotence upon omnipotence, the pitcher upon the potter, and the crawling worm upon you, the Lord of hosts, a saint's portion is safe and secure. Sickness may take my health and strength. Death may take my friends and my relations. Enemies may take my estate and my liberty, but none can take you, my God, from me. He's praying about unseen Comparing them with the seen things, like those are going to go, those are going to be gone. Lots of things, they're endangered by all sorts of things, but not you, God. In fact, as I think about it, nothing can really endanger that, because how can these, how can anything impotent come on the omnipotent God and, and take you away? Nothing can take, and that's the inheritance of the saints, we're heirs of God. He says one kind of thing that you could see, it fades, it's wasting away, but one thing can't fade or be taken away. And that's the direction that we're to be looking. Those are the things that we're to be looking at, Paul says. If we're not to lose heart or if we're to have hope in the future glory and compare our present sufferings as nothing in comparison to the future glory that is to come. We can be sure of unseen glory awaiting. Why? Because we know that, that this God who was unseen became seen, right? He, he took on flesh. The fullness of God dwelled in body. And what happened to him? Verse 3 of chapter 8. He was sent, the Son was sent, and in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin. And he, was con he condemned sin in the flesh. But that's not the end of the story. He came, he was the sin offering. But what happened? Verse 11 says, the Spirit raised him from the dead. And Christian, that same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, giving you the assurance of verse 11 that if the Spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Sufferings may be great, but they're going to give way. They're going to give way to glory. As Jesus' suffering was great and gave way to glory, so too, as adopted sons, your suffering may be great, your sufferings may be immense, but they're going to give way to glory. Now, I don't know where your suffering is right now. Or if it's sufferings, and you, you almost can't even describe it without in the plural, as Paul does here. I don't know the intensity of those sufferings. But here's what we do know, is that we can bring the resurrection to that conversation. And just introduce the resurrection to those sufferings and let it talk. Like, hey, sufferings, have you met risen Christ? He went and suffered too, and now he's risen. And it says that I'm an adopted son. I'm co-heirs with him. What he received, I get to receive. He was glorified. I'm going to be glorified. What do the sufferings have to say about that? We don't have to live in our sufferings as if Jesus is still in the tomb. We're nor without hope. That's what we're doing. When we're in the midst of our sufferings and they're crushing us and they're, they're surrounding us and the cloud is dark, the, the pain is, is closing in on us, we don't have to live in those places as if Jesus is in the grave. He's not. He's been raised. And so we look to resurrect, resurrection 
glory as heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, and know of that glory, that there's more glory awaiting us there than there is sufferings here. More glory awaiting than suffering to endure. And so looking to the eternal things, considering them, all of a sudden what this doesn't do is it doesn't just get rid of all these sufferings. They're not gone. But it puts suffering or sufferings, puts them in their place. Puts them in perspective. This is what Paul did, didn't he? Paul couldn't avoid sufferings. He didn't avoid sufferings. But he rings out with certainty in verse 18. I'm sure that none of these these sufferings of this present age are worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed. He has some certainty and some hope in that, doesn't he? Why? You know, sufferings knocked Paul down. Literally knocked him down. They threw stones at him. They tried to kill him. Like he was knocked down by suffering. Jesus also knocked him down. He knew great sufferings. He knew a great Savior. He knew he'd be an heir with Christ. And his conclusion from these great sufferings and this great Savior is don't even compare them. And we can have that certainty. We can have that hope. We can have that hope of future glory by telling our sufferings where they need to be. Those are only present sufferings. They're transient. They're passing. They're soon to be gone. We put them in their proper place. One pastor of old said this, My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering. When I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders, shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his sufferings and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. Put the sufferings in their place. Sufferings have an expiration date. They won't last. Christian, if you're suffering, hang on. I don't know how intense it is. I don't know how bad. Hang on. A little bit longer. I don't know. Years. Hang on. It's going to be over soon. Consider glory that's ahead. That won't ever be over. It's infinite. It's eternal. Hang on. And in the worst sufferings, let's take God at his word. And he says here, of your present sufferings, they're not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed. Hang on. We're going to suffer. We suffer and we have hope because of the coming glory. And Paul goes on to speak about creation having the same kind of pointing for us. I mean, we suffer and we groan, and he starts with creation groaning. Paul personifies creation and says, creation knows that that glory that I spoke of in verse 18, creation knows it's coming too, and it waits for it. Verse 19, creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Don't miss here, implied, the revealing of the sons of God, that future glory, it is coming. I don't want us to skip over that here. Right? It's coming. He assures us again here. The trumpet is going to sound, the Lord's going to descend, and the sons of God, those who have trusted in Christ, are going to be revealed. And creation even is pointing the way. He kind of personifies it and says, they, they know. Creation knows, like inanimate creation, it, it knows what's going on. They are, this creation is waiting with eager longing. There's a translation that says it this way, that the whole creation is on tiptoe. It's eager for the revealing of the sons of God. It's eager for glory. Why? Verse 20 says why. 
The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. You know the story of creation, that God created it and called it good, but in chapter 3, man sins against God, rebels against him, and part of the curse that, that God levels to this thing that he created was a cursing of the ground. Creation itself is cursed. It's a consequence of man's sin. And so he says it was subjected to futility. In other words, it's not doing its purpose. It's not able to fulfill its purpose. Like it's supposed to produce and be garden-like and instead thorns come up. Weeds are everywhere. Like that's what's going on. It's not fulfilling its purpose fully. Creation was subjected to corruption. The corruption that came with sin corrupts creation as well. But it was subjected in hope because it was subjected by God. Verse 21 says, It was subjected in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There's a present bondage to this corruption, right? There's, there's decay and, and death in creation, and they're pervasive. Like they're present. There's not a place you can go in creation where there's not some sense of decay and death. Like creeks don't smell good. Things die. That's part of creation now. It's a result of the fall. It's part of the fall's corruption. But what does he say about it? It was subjected in hope that, that God is going to overturn this fall, overturn the curse. That along with the curse on that day came a promise. Do you remember? There's one. The seed of the woman is going to come. And there's redemption through this seed. And that even gives creation hope. It was subjected in hope. There's a freedom from the bondage to corruption coming. And that freedom of creation is coinciding with the glory of the children of God. This is a future reversal of the curse where God turns everything that was cursed, he turns it back upside down, overturns the curse, overturns the fall, and where creation itself is transformed, or we could say made new, it becomes a new creation. I, I like how one commentator says it, where Paul here, he envisions a future salvation that will engulf the entire cosmos and reverse and transcend the consequences of the fall. And Paul, he, he personifies creation here to say, hey, this creation has the expectation of that future glory of, of God overturning the curse, of reversing and transcending all the consequences that sin had brought into this place. Built into creation is this expectation for coming glory, an expectation that, that's a bit like childbirth. That's where he goes in verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation is, is personified here, but as he goes through here and he talks about this expectation and this hope of creation, here's what's not happening, is creation is not still taking center stage. What is creation looking for? What are they longing? What's the eager hope of creation? It's for the redemption of the children of God. Center stage in here is still the redemption of God, and the redemption is centered on what? His children. And that's what creation is looking for, and creation is waiting for the redemption of God's children. So, so the groaning of creation is not a groaning from the pain of pollution. That, that might be a part of it, but that's not the primary groaning of creation here. It's not a groaning because people are littering or mismanaging land or water or natural resources. That's not what's happening here. 
It's groaning for the revealing of the glory of the children of God. And that glory of the redemption of the children of God will be so great that creation itself is included in this. Creation is hoping for this. It's groaning for this with this expectation. And so there's a groaning going on. And this groaning is joined with more groaning. Verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. Those who have the Spirit, those who have trust in Christ, have the spirit of adoption, that the very children of God, and if we're children of God, then we're heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ Jesus. Those children, they groan inwardly because of what? Because the Spirit is in them. That we groan inwardly because of the Spirit. The first fruits of the Spirit is in us. So the Spirit, this first fruit, this pledge, this deposit of the new age, saying of us in our world, in the midst of a fallen place, it says of us right here and right now, destined for glory. You belong to God. He's going to take you to be with Him. Those who have the Spirit, they can have that kind of assurance. We have the Spirit in us. The Spirit is the first fruit of the new age. So that we can say, verse 10, If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So your resurrection is coming. And it will one day will be final and full. It'll, Full redemption is coming, and the Spirit bears witness to this. It says, verse 16, that the, He Himself bears witness with our spirit, that we're children of God, and if we're children, then we're heirs. And that same Spirit that bears witness to our spirit, that tells us that we're heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ Jesus, here's what it also does inside of us. It groans. It groans. Verse 23 we ourselves are the first of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There's a spirit groaning, spirit-led groaning. You might think like, man, is that a spiritual gift? Groaning. Many of you are like, I've got that one. I've got the spiritual gift of groaning. I know about the other ones, but that one I'm there. But I want us to notice carefully what this groaning is. This is not complaining it is not grumbling, right? Paul says of complaining and grumbling, don't do those things. Instead, rejoice in the Lord always. It is not discouragement. It is not discontentment. He says, give thanks in all circumstances. It's not that kind of groaning. That The New Testament even warns us about certain types of groaning. Hebrews chapter, 17, verse, chapter 13, verse 17 talks about honoring and obeying your leaders, submitting to them. Because they're going to give an account for your soul. And here's what he says. Let them do it without groaning. James, there's a one another command. It's in the negative, though, in the book of James. Don't grumble against one another. Don't groan. It's the same word. Don't groan against one another there. The, the groan of Romans 8 is different from the Hebrews 13 groaning, from the James 5 groaning. The, the Romans 8 groaning is inward. We groan inwardly. In other words, you, you don't say, like, hey, we have the Spirit, and we're going to join in this great choir of groaners. It's no choir of groaning. It's an inward groaning. It's also a groaning of waiting, right? 
we groan inwardly as we wait. We wait. What are we waiting on? Or the adoption as sons. We're, we're waiting on the redemption of our bodies. Those who have the Spirit, here's what you need to know. That you're adopted now. You're in. You're in the family. If you belong to Jesus, you belong to the family of God. You're in. You're adopted as sons of God. Children of God. Right here and right now. But that adoption is not finally and fully finished. And here's what awaits. He tells us. As we're awaiting this adoption. What's this adoption that's awaiting? I thought we were in. The redemption of our bodies. That's what's awaiting. The, the redemption of the body awaits. It's the part of us that has yet to experience the new life of the resurrection. It hasn't yet been raised up. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He, he says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, that's our body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. Yeah, we groan. Longing for what? To, be, to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. But here's what he says. There's groaning two places now from Paul. And the groaning is still one of the things that is looking towards something. It has something that is coming. Verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. It's coming. The, the groaning has an end date as well. The, the redemption of our bodies is coming. Verse 23, we, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for something, for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Christ, He is the one who rose from the grave, and as the one who rose from the grave, he is called the, the first fruits, like the kind of the pledge of what's going to happen to us. 1 Corinthians 15 calls him the first fruit. And how did Jesus raise? He rose bodily. Like, yeah, he appeared through doors, but he also ate. He had a body. He rose bodily. So in other words, the physical bodies that we've been given are a part of redemption, part of the resurrection. And so the groaning is a groaning to be further clothed, to have a resurrection body, a body like Jesus. It's, it's a groaning for redemption to finally and fully hit this fleshly body and make it new. Now, I think when we think about this groaning, it's easy to understand groaning because of imperfections in the body. It's easy to understand like, this isn't functioning the way it's meant to function. Well, I'm getting older and, and my, my arm doesn't do what it used to do. I, even my brain, like, even my memory, it's like, where's the, what are all these things? Like, it's, it's easy to understand the, the groaning because of imperfections or, or groanings because of the sufferings of this present age. It's easy to understand groanings because we live in a fallen world with all sorts of fallen situations and circumstances all around us. It's easy to understand those groanings and even to groan of them ourselves but we are not groaning for that here in Romans 8 what's the groaning for we are groaning for bodily redemption and so Christian is that you are you groaning for bodily redemption the full adoption that God has promised some believers can groan for everything else they, they can groan because the, the body has some imperfection, is not performing the way it used to, or is not doing what it's meant to do, or, or because of the sufferings of this present age. The unbeliever can, can groan because of the things in our world that are broken and not set right. All of those things unbelievers can groan for, but Christians ought to be groaning for more than that. Amen. Are we groaning the way I think Paul groans in chapter 7? 
Yeah, he groans because of the sin that's in his flesh, in his body. But what does he groan for? He groans for deliverance. When's that coming? That's what he's groaning for. Are we groaning not just to be delivered from something, but, but for the who of that deliverance? Are we groaning for him, that we'd be like him, with, with a redeemed body like his, that we could be with him? Is that part of our groaning? And if it's not, then we, again, we need to go back and examine ourselves to see whether we're in Christ and have the same spirit that dwelt in him dwelling in us. Amen. Perhaps this groaning that Paul speaks of here is stifled by unbelief in what's to come. Perhaps it's stifled by our fear of the future. Or maybe that we have no expectation for what's to come at all. And the gospel of Jesus Christ speaks to both death and resurrection. Not just one or the other. So that we could say through the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ that death is the doorway that gets us to, to glory. That the future is certain. That glory awaits. And so if, if there's unbelief there, we just preach the gospel to it. If there's fear of the future there, we just say our future is certain because of what Jesus has done. If we wonder, like, I don't know what even to expect. He says, expect glory. It's better than what you can imagine. Perhaps our Groaning here is stifled because our hope doesn't go beyond desire to be free of worldly troubles. That's a hard one, isn't it? It'd be great to be free of all the worldly troubles. That's not the groaning here. And perhaps our groaning is stifled because that's all our hope goes to. It, it, it ends with the present existence. It ends with the, with the things that we can see. But the good news of the gospel is not that your suffering will be ended, but that God will be obtained. Suffering ended is a great gift. It's not the gift. God himself is the gift. And here's what this passage is telling us. You'll get him. Amen. Finally, fully, you'll receive him. Groan for that. And here's what he says, that if we have the first fruits of the Spirit, there is an inward groaning while we're waiting, a groaning for something. Not just because of something, not just from something that we're experiencing. We're groaning for something. We're groaning for redemption. For full adoption. And because this is a spirit groaning, the same spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead dwelling in us, this groaning then is shot through with hope, with expectation, with confidence. There's a final adoption and redemption coming. Christian, you are saved and you will be saved. You are adopted and you will be adopted. You are redeemed and you will be redeemed. We go from salvation to salvation, redemption to redemption, adoption to adoption. Isn't being a Christian great? Like, isn't that the best news there is? Like, and because we go from redemption to redemption, salvation to salvation, adoption to adoption, we have hope right now. We have expectation right now. We have confidence right now. And so we wait and we groan. And ours is a groaning that we'll happily sing. We sing a song, Absent from Flesh. Absent from Flesh. And the next line, Oh, blissful thought. Absent from Flesh, that's going to be weird. No, blissful thought. And we sing, it's not, not a, I don't know, keys, right? Not one of the ones that sounds dark and bad. Minor, minor key. Not a minor key. Not that at all. It's on one side of the piano, I know. It's a happy song. Jay said it one time, it's a toe-tapping song, right? It's like, it's a blissful thought that we're going to be absent from flesh, that we're going to be finally and fully redeemed, even our bodies, all the way down to these bodies, 
are going to be redeemed. Because we're moving from adoption to adoption. Redemption to redemption. It's the kind of hope. It's the kind of groaning and hopeful groaning that, that longs for that day all the more as we see it drawing near. We don't shudder as it draws nearer. We, we actually long for it all the more. Each day, here's what you get. Good news. You're getting closer to glory. Amen. Time's only going one way. Ours is a groaning that would say of that end, Oh, come Lord Jesus. So we groan. And we groan in hope. And final redemption is coming. We're to be full of expectation of future glory. So we suffer and we groan and we do those in hope. And he also goes from suffering and groaning to waiting. And we wait in hope as well. Verse 23, he, he says, We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Saved. Past sense. Again, that is something that has happened and will happen. It's moving toward a future salvation. It is from salvation to salvation. And what attends, what is with this present salvation here? Hope. Hope. In this hope, we were saved. It's in hope. Hope is with it. You're saved in hope. Hope is this confidence, this expectation of future glory. That glory awaits. And he says, verse 24, in this hope you were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it. Christian, we hope for what we don't see. And so what do we do in the midst of that? We We wait. The, the waiting in the midst of that is not optional. It's part of it. You're saved in hope, and part of that hope is waiting. You, you're going to wait. We don't know how long, but there's waiting. But the manner of that waiting has already been described. It's present again in this verse, but it's been described in verse 23. Like We, we do it in hope, and, and in hope we, we have this eagerness. As creation... So those who are redeemed, we wait eagerly. We, we are to be those. And that creation is just not the only one on tiptoe waiting for the redemption of the sons of God. Like, the sons of God are waiting on tiptoe for our final and full redemption. Now, I think of the, the kids in the kitchen, right? Like, they run in there because they know good things happen there. And especially when we get this big KitchenAid out, and we, we start using that, and you hear that sound, it's like, do, 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 do. Not only the kids, but maybe my feet when I kind of go up into that kitchen, tiptoe up there and like, oh, it's in that bowl right there. Because we know there's something good coming, right? We tiptoe and we, we wait on tiptoe for what's in there. But then the waiting actually begins. You got to mix it up. You got to fix it, put it in the oven, all those things. But, but being on tiptoe is, is this hopeful posture. And Christian, that's the posture of our life. So, so in the midst of all that's going on, in the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of our groaning, is that your posture? Is that your disposition? Are you on tiptoe even in those things? Are you on tiptoe waiting eagerly? If not, there might be a few issues. Like if you're tiptoeing up and you're, you're not quite sure what's in the bowl, maybe that doesn't give you an eagerness. But Paul said, what do we wait for? We wait eagerly for adoption of sons. What could be better than the final and full redemption as sons of God? We're heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. What could be better than not only experiencing part of the fathering of the Father now, but getting the full fathering of the Father later and for eternity? We're heirs of God. He told us what's in the bowl. You, you get all of it. You get God himself. 
And as the object of our waiting is not in doubt, neither should be the posture of our waiting, it ought to be an eagerness. We need to wait eagerly. We've seen what's in the bowl. We know it's being prepared. The timer is on. Like It's in the oven. It's counting down. It is only going one direction. And all of that builds up eagerness. Eagerly waiting. We are to be those on tiptoe. We're not fully satisfied with the things here and now. We're eagerly waiting for what's coming. And it's coming. There's to be eager waiting. And this, this is a waiting that's also be awaiting, he says, with patience. We, we wait for what we don't see. And if we don't see it, we wait for it with patience. I, I read this book. I, I like to read stuff every now and then about Navy SEALs. And here's what one guy says. He says, the mission doesn't always wait for sunny 72-degree days. Whether the objective is in waist-deep snow, the middle of shark-infested Indian Ocean, or up a goat trail on the highest peaks of Afghanistan, we are trained to stay focused and complete the mission. We don't need comfort to be effective. I think that's what Paul's aiming at here. He says, when, we, when he says we, we wait for it with patience, what he's saying is that there's going to be sufferings that are going to persist. And in that, those sufferings, we wait with patience. Time seems long. When are you coming, oh Lord? How long? We wait with patience. The body is groaning. I'm, I'm getting older. It doesn't seem to be working. Wait with patience. Stay focused on the mission. Endure. There's no need for comfort for you to continue on and to receive the full redemption, redemption of your bodies. Like, you, you don't need any of that comfort. You, you have what you need. So stay focused. Stay on the mission. Wait with patience. Now, as he said that, we don't need our comfort to be effective. For, for the SEALs, that might be kind of a hard sell. Uh, they, they have a, a motto, the only easy day was yesterday. So it's like, oh, you don't get comfort, and your only easy day was already behind you, so good luck with whatever your mission is moving forward. But our waiting has an advantage to that waiting and that kind of mission and that kind of focus. Our waiting has the advantage of hope. Hope. Hope is tied in with patience here. And it's crucial for patience. It's crucial for waiting. One author says that hope is the mother of patience and the nurse of patience. Hope breeds patience and hope feeds patience. And so with this hope producing patience, this, this hope nursing patience and feeding patience, what the Christian can say is not that the only easy day was yesterday, but our easy day is coming. Amen. It's ahead of us. We have the hope of future glory. That hope, church, is not a hope without suffering. It's not a hope without groaning. We suffer. We groan. It's not a hope without waiting. We wait. But Paul says, do it eagerly. Do it with patience. But because we have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, we can be certain that he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in us. As we wait, as we groan, as we suffer, we can be certain. We can be full of expectation. We can be confident of future glory because our hope isn't fixed on something here and now. It's not fixed on us. It's not fixed on our performance. It's not even fixed on our level of hope. Hope is fixed on that future glory secured for us by Christ Jesus. Jesus wanted a people 
so fixed on him, so fixed on the hope that he brings to them that they would together remember that hope, that they would together look forward to that hope. And one of the ways he put in front of his people to do that was called the Lord's Supper. It's a meal of hope. It seems like a strange meal for hope because he says, here's what you need to do. Remember, body broken, blood poured out. But it's a meal of hope. Because he says, that body was broken out for you, Christian. That blood was spilled for you, Christian. If you you've trust in Jesus, that body and blood's for you. And it's a meal of hope because he says, do this in remembrance of me. And, and you're going to do that as long as he tarries until he returns. It's a meal of hope. We're saying in this meal, we have hope, not in us, but in Jesus. In what he has done and what he will do when he comes back and finally and fully finishes the redemption that he started. It's a meal of hope. If you have that hope, take this meal. Take it with us. Hear the resounding hope of the saints this morning and let it give you even more hope. If you're not a Christian, don't take this meal. We want to give you real hope. And that only is found not in this meal, but in Jesus himself. Take him. Trust in him. If you're suffering, if you're groaning, if you're waiting, this meal is for you. It may be a meal that seems to make the glory far off, but I think the meal helps us bring it near. It may be that in your suffering and in your groaning that your hope and your confidence are waning, but let this meal be to you and testify to you and the people taking it testify to you that Jesus is coming back. So you're suffering, you're groaning, you're waiting, they have an end date. But your glory doesn't. So hope even now. Let's pray together. Jesus, we take this meal today and we remember your broken body. We remember your shed blood, your suffering, your crying out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You understand the suffering of this world and you even understand many things that we don't, like the wrath of your Father being poured out for sin. But we don't just remember your suffering in this meal. We remember your ascension to glory as well, your resurrection from the grave and your ascension into heaven. And we know that just like you had glory on the other side of your suffering, you've promised the same thing for us. And you've given us your Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a first taste of what's in the bowl before the full meal comes. And God, we pray to you today. We want you to change our hearts and align our perspective more in line with the truth because many times we are flat-footed and we are not on our tiptoes. Many times we are groaning for the wrong reasons, for the wrong things, not keeping in mind that the future so far outweighs the suffering of this present time that it's not even worth comparing, God. And so uh, conform our minds to your mind, conform our hope to your promises. They are true. You promised to send someone who would crush the serpent 
and undo the curse. And you did just that, and you're going to finish it, Lord. And so we want to put our hope in you and put our trust in you. Give us that groaning, that longing to see your face. I pray that we would endure patiently on this planet, God. And those today who are here who do not understand what that even means, Lord, will you open up their eyes to the seriousness of their sin so that they can repent and open up their eyes to the purity of your love who loves those who are enemies against you, Lord, and give them new hearts today. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.